Welcome to Red Book Club. Butterfly in the sky. I can go twice as high. All right, so I'll kick us off with a little intro. Um, we'll do our, our introductions in the order we were listed. Um, and we will we can answer uh, what we would vend if we were in fact a vending machine. Then yeah, then we'll get into the, the summaries. Uh, my name's Connor. I use he, him pronouns. And if I was a vending machine, I would vend all the shit that like people lose and they don't know where it's gone. So like, if people wanted to get their lost stuff back, they would have to come to this vending machine. Except probably you would never get the stuff that you'd lost. So you'd end up with someone else's lost stuff all the time. Ooh. <laughs> ah, that's an interesting concept. Yeah. How is anyone gonna beat that, Connor? Damn it. <laughs> 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 okay, then I would just find like monster instead, monster energy. <laughs> <laughs> but like un- unique monster energy, which is like ten times the strength that you can only get there. Oh, God damn delicious. it! Carter's gonna kill people. Um, okay, uh, my name is Faiz. I use he/him pronouns, and uh, I'm not gonna answer that question because uh, Connor gave the ultimate answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my name is Aaron. I use he/him pronouns, and you know I'd want to vent something that I really like. So how about just pure unadulterated revolution? Yeah. Ooh, how would that work? Does that come in like a bag? <laughs> <laughs> is it resealable? Can you reseal bags like that? <laughs> you grab it, and it's like not labeled for individual sale. all right hi i'm andrew uh he him pronouns and if i was a vending machine i would vend the weekly means of subsistence for one person nice nice uh my name is quentin he him pronouns if i was a vending machine i would vend uh original formula for loco Oh, damn. What? Yes, oh, you're speaking my language. Y'all are both going to kill people. I don't know why you're trying to kill people. This is fucked up. <laughs> um, my name's Karina. She, her pronouns. Um, if I was a vending machine, I would vend hand-knitted socks, only because I'm sitting knitting right now. Oh, but I, yes. The problem is you'd buy a pair and then you'd have to wait six months till I get restocked at the rate that I <laughs> One pair every six months. Exactly. Or one sock and then you can come back like three months later for the second sock. <laughs> Perfect. Nice. Uh, I'm Tadichi, he, him pronouns. And if I was a vending machine, I think I'm going to be the most basic one. I would just vend water because these are my favorite ones when I see them when I'm traveling. Because I just stay hydrated. Yeah. Uh, I'm Talia. She, her. If I was a vending machine, I would vend library cards, but the library cards would get you into any library Mm. in the world. Even the restricted sections? Yes. Even the vending. I'm Jess, they, them pronouns. And if I were a vending machine, I would vend Kindle paperwhites loaded with all of the books on the Marxist internet or Marxist.org internet archive. Nice. Damn, y'all are so creative. Okay. Revolutionary vending machines. 
<laughs> some some truly crying. revolutionary vending machines. <laughs> Especially the one for just water. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look at Tadichi actually changing the material needs of people. Stay hydrated. Once people get into... free. Everything would be free. <laughs> yeah, once people get into the uh, original Four loco, that's when the revolution's going to happen. That's when the boogaloo's yes. going to happen. That's when we all actually storm Area 51. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just for context for like non-US people, what oh. what is what for local? <laughs> What's for local? Um, it's, oh. it, was, it was banned in the states. Um, it's a malt liquor that's combined with an energy drink, and the uh -huh. level of both of those um, substances are so high that it's dangerous. And so the oh. original recipe has been modified. Modified. We had a yeah. uh, R.I.P. for loco party where they announced that they. The last day they were selling the original recipe, and we got as many as we could. It went hog wild. Oh no! Good for you. These are being discontinued for possibility of death. Better have a party about it. I'm glad yeah. you made it out alive. We were right. Like, we wanted death. <laughs> Sounds about right, actually. Yeah, that's fair. At 19, I would have done the same. We're 30, and we still want to die. <laughs> I mean. At at uh, Pearlscon, uh, Talia convinced people to play Edward Forty Hands. Oh, wait, no, no, no. No, it wasn't Edward Forty Hands. We had brass monkeys. We went and got yeah, That was all Andrew. That was and, all Andrew. I mean, <laughs> I, I was just the inspiration. You were the driving force. It's am, true, and I will agree with Andrew on this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can oh. be a little pushy. <laughs> We're very classy. <laughs> there was like craft beers, but also brass monkeys in the room. It was really the whole spectrum. Oh, so brass monkey is also a drink? Oh yeah, yeah brass monkey is a is a malt liquor with oh what the fuck is poured into it? Orange juice. Orange juice. Huh. Anyway, moving forward. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, welcome to Proles of the Book Club. Uh, this week, we're going to be covering chapter two of Caliban and the Witch. And uh, in this chapter, we get into some really interesting territory because we're going to be challenging the deterministic nature of our, our view of the transition from feudalism to capitalism. And we're really going to be getting into some information that was left out of Marx's analysis of primitive accumulation. So we're going to have some really interesting discussion on both of those topics while we cover this uh, this really dense chapter. I think it's one of the largest chapters in the book, but a lot of really, really good information in there. And uh, just starting out with the intro, I wanted to just read off the four points that uh, Federici lists at the very end of the introduction. And it is uh, one, the expropriation of European workers from their means of subsistence and the enslavement of Native Americans and Africans to the mines and plantations of the New World were not the only means by which a proletariat was formed and, quote, accumulated. Two, this process required the transformation of the body into a work machine and the subjugation of women to the reproduction of the workforce. Most of all, it required the destruction of the power of women, which in Europe, as in America, was achieved through the extermination of the, quote, witches. Three, primitive accumulation, then, was not simply an accumulation and concentration of exploitable workers and capital, it was also an accumulation of differences and divisions within the working class, whereby hierarchies built upon gender as well as race and age became constitutive of class rule and the formation of the modern proletariat. Four, 
We cannot, therefore, identify capitalist accumulation with the liberation of the worker, female or male, as many Marxists, among others, have done, or see the advent of capitalism as a moment of historical progress. On the contrary, capitalism has created more brutal and insidious forms of enslavement, as it has planted into the body of the proletariat deep divisions that have served to intensify and conceal exploitation. It is in great part because of these imposed divisions especially those between women and men, that capitalist accumulation continues to devastate life in every corner of the planet. So yeah, those are like, that's what we're, we're going to be getting. Some real heavy shit. Yeah, very heavy. Yeah. I mean, that's why this, I'm really glad that we, I think we've mentioned it kind of in the chats here and there, but I'm really glad that we're covering this right now because we just we just covered Capital Volume 1 and we want to move on to Accumulation of Capital by Luxembourg after we finish Capital Volume 2. And I feel like this is kind of the missing piece, like Federici is arguing. I totally agree with her that that what we're seeing here, and Marx kind of just glazed over the idea of primitive accumulation and it's so incredibly important because it isn't primitive as something that's happening in the past. It is like you were saying, and that capitalism seems to have been dependent on this process of primitive accumulation using colonialism and the subjugation of women specifically in, you know, triggered by the, the witch hunts. I feel like that capitalism could not have actually become the machine that it is today without those mechanisms of, of exploitation and removal of power from women and indigenous people. So I'm not sure if that fits in the section one, but I'm really glad that we're reading this because I think this is a super vital part of Marxist analysis of the way that capitalism functions. Yeah, section one is uh, capitalist accumulation and the accumulation of labor in Europe. And what we really kick right off with in this section is um, we're, we're at the end of the German Peasant War and the revitalization of slavery in Europe and the American colonies has become to come into the fore. Like, this is where uh, the old uh, slave, slave society began blending with the uh, new burgeoning capitalist, capitalist society. In this section, one of the things that I think is important to think about that also goes along with um, Federici's challenge of the the actual phraseology, the transition from feudalism to capitalism, is that we're talking about like the revolutionary peasantry at the beginning of this section. And that's something that a lot of Marxists seem to forget when we're talking about this period of time. We, we talk a lot about the accumulation and how that affected the workers and capital, but as, as Federici says, we're not talking about the, the way this affects women, and we're also not talking about the revolutionary potential that the peasantry at the time had and the things that they actually did. And at, at some points, we're even talking about the, the proto-dictatorship of the proletariat last week and all these other things. So like, it's another thing to keep in mind while we're examining even just the concept of the transition, because we need to understand that this dialectic process is always ongoing and it's not deterministic. So like, you never know what could have happened with the German uh, peasant war, like if the outcome had been slightly different. And to say that, like, the course of history that we've taken is the only possible course of history, it would be wrong and unscientific. I think a great uh, part in here is when she says that the free wage labor market did not develop it until the 18th century, which I mean, just that statement by itself kind of overthrows any ideas about um, capitalism as being this like good liberating thing, you know, it took like hundreds of years of ideology and force to get people to 
go about it without having to force them like constantly. When you say transition, it like completely, uh, I think sugarcoats what actually was going on because there were so many agrarian uprisings during this time period. People, the peasants did just take this sitting down. Like I've been reading a lot about uh, medieval Irish history and like the Irish did not take that shit lightly. Like they also had their commons taken away from them, which is talked about later in this chapter. But also women, I think I might be jumping ahead, but women were definitely the ones leading the revolutionary efforts to say, we're not going to take this. Yeah, because they were the most affected by it. At one point, Federici mentions how, like, I think it was seven out of some 25 or 30 uh, bread riots were composed entirely of women, and that women were often at the at the very front of the peasant revolutions in, in the newly forming cities and amongst the newly forming proletariat. Yeah, I think one thing that we should keep in mind is um, I think part of, like, an obfuscation at least of why capitalism looks good now we're sitting here like 200 300 years later is for socialists at least probably we can see that you know the the means of production for like large scale producing i don't know from food to clothes everything to care for everyone is there and we tend to attribute that to capitalism itself that's why starting off usually as a marxist you look around and you're like okay there's a problem in distribution, but we have the technology to feed everyone, and that technology came from capitalism, basically. Um, I think that's the general starting point of most of us who have, I don't know, taken our leftist journey, but I don't speak for everyone. It's just that it's a path that was taken historically right now, and but the thing, as we said, we shouldn't forget is that it wasn't the necessary path to be taken towards a more like egalitarian society. It's the path that was taken, but that just doesn't mean that it was better than what was before. And I think that's a point that gets mixed up a lot most of the time. Absolutely. And at the very end of this section, I'm just going to quote directly from the book because Federici says something really important. I traced the main developments that shaped the advent of capitalism in Europe, land privatization and the price revolution, to argue that neither was sufficient to produce a self-sustaining process of proletarianization. I then examine in broad outlines in the policies which the capitalist class introduced to discipline, reproduce, and expand the European proletariat, beginning with the attack it launched on women, resulting in the construction of a new patriarchal order in which I define as the patriarchy of wage. And that's just a nod to the section that we're going to get into later, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading. It's a really important section titled The Patriarchy of Wage, and that's, I, I think we're going to have some really good discussion on that later on. So... Um... This is kind of going back to the intro a little bit, but I did highlight one of the quotes that they put at the beginning, the one that she has from Barbara uh, Amalad from Heart of Darkness. And I feel like this, I feel like this, yeah. Um, I have it highlighted too. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like this is a good, um, I don't know, this is kind of how it feels at least from a non-men's perspective, but also this is, this is the way that they posi positioned it as well. So the quote is, to him, she was a fragmented commodity whose feelings and choices were rarely considered. Her head and her heart were separated from her back and her hands and divided from her womb and vagina. Her back and muscle were pressed into field labor. Her hands were demanded to nurse and nurture the white man. 
her vagina used for a sexual pleasure was the gateway to the womb, which was his place of capital investment. The capital investment being the sex act and the resulting child, the accumulated surplus. So that's such a good quote. Yeah, I feel like that that actually sums up what we're going over in this this chapter really well, because that's exactly what had happened is women became the means of production for the workforce. And we're watching throughout this chapter kind of the evolution of that happening and it becoming a more successful endeavor. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that we talked about that. The last line really drives the point home of what this whole book is basically about, about women are just used to produce labor for capital. Yep. We're the means of production for making more workers. And that is the positioning throughout all of the history in this book, but it's also the positioning we see currently today, even in, you know, places like the United States, but um, Mm -hmm. also in the places that Federici mentions where, you know, witch hunts are still happening. (laughs) But right now, like the GOP, when they make arguments about abortion or birth control or reproductive health or Planned Parenthood or whatever, it's always from the position of women as a means of production for other people. So it's never about what about our autonomy or our rights to decide what happens to our body. It's always about uh, whether or not we should have the right to decide what happens to this commodity of a person that comes out of us. And so, yeah, I feel like that that's just the ongoing framing that's been happening for centuries and that Federici just continues to reiterate and prove over and over again in this work. Like it has been going on for centuries. Uh, I I studied um, political cartoons and birth control review, which was written by Margaret Sanger. It was a monthly uh, magazine put out during the 1900s, early 1900s. And there were a lot of cartoons in there that illustrated the capitalist class wants to control our bodies because we're the ones who are producing more soldiers because this was happening during World War One. They want us to produce more soldiers and produce more workers. And that was like an ongoing theme. So like women have been talking about this for years, for centuries about and they can see right through this about this control over our bodies and what children actually mean for the capitalist class. It's really interesting. Right. Hard to agree. A bit uh, aside probably but uh, it's it's close to this recently i read uh, an article uh, called the philosophical origins of patriarchy and it just highlights a bit of the form in which early sort of greek western medicine starts tying up a woman to her procreation abilities basically and one nice quote with that was mothers, fathers, husbands, and of course, young women themselves were led to believe that female health demanded regular sexual intercourse and pregnancy, which I don't know. I found interesting that that also goes like far back to like uh, Aristotle, Plato and sort of Hippocratic oath times, like, or we still do the oath now, but I mean, back then when it originated and, uh, it seems to be very tied into Western like thought or tradition to have women and like women and their procreative abilities be basically a signifier for their value and nothing more. It's entirely the signification for our value. I mean, there's even a a, 
a regular conversation about whether or not, you know, whether or not you're really a mother if you've had a C-section or whether or not you're really a woman if you've had a hysterectomy. So, or whether Mm -hmm. or not you are are really a woman after you go through menopause and can no longer get pregnant. Like those aren't just like fringe questions. Those are primary questions that non-men face when Um, they're confronted with these, these physical changes that they go through. So like, it's not even like a kooky idea. This is the general conversation of whether or not we even have value if we're not able to produce children. Or if you choose not to have children, then there's something incredibly wrong with you. I get this question all the time at work, at different jobs, like, oh, you don't want to have kids. You'll change your mind. No, I'm not. (laughs) What if you don't? Yeah. Like, like even if I wanted to go get a hysterectomy today or get my tubes tied today so that I could no longer reproduce, my doctor would tell me no. It's extremely unlikely a doctor would tell me yes, because um, it's they would say things like, um, what if your husband wants to have another one? Or what if you find another partner and they want to have kids? That's basically the argument overwhelmingly is what if you... What if somebody finds use with your uterus later on? Um, But when a man wants to get um, whatever the fuck it's called, the vasectomy, there's no question. They can go get it done. It's quick. There's no problem. But they still usually don't when it comes to one or the other partner becoming, um, you know, permanently incapable of reproduction. It's usually the man that does it, despite the fact that it's, you know, a minor surgery and and reversible reversible exactly and um people are able to get up and walk the next goddamn hour (laughs) so um yeah most of the time like even in the medical field in you know americans like to think that we're in the greatest country in the world or whatever but if, if you take that fucking framing and realize that women have absolutely no control over our own reproduction, even though there are medical procedures that can give us control. It just certainly doesn't feel very great, does it? And it permeates just like through to just also like, well, what you were saying, Jess, about being questioned, like, well, what if someone else has a use for your body, but also being made to question yourself and your own decisions, but like, Uh, but you might change your mind. Like you don't know you how you can't possibly be so sure in your decision that you can change your mind. Um, right. Are you sure you want to make yourself unuseful yet? Exactly. Or that's just like an infantilization of yeah. women thinking they can't like form their own thoughts and like be one hundred percent okay with doing that to their body. Like the whole control over our body is just, well, women aren't that smart. Like they'll regret yeah. it. We know they will if they get an yeah. abortion or whatever. Like it's just. Infantilization is the right word. Yeah. Because like, it's exactly the same thing I would tell my kid if he was like, I want to go get a get? tattoo. And, like, <laughs> and I'd be like, well, honey, I don't think that you're sure you want to have yeah. a tattoo when you're 25. So maybe it's not time to do that. Like maybe other people influence your decisions later on. Like, I mean, it's total infantilization. It's like, I don't think you know how to make your own decisions about your body. So let's just hold off. (laughs) 
And so much of it comes from other women now as well, because it's just saturated the culture. So, I mean, like my personal experience was like going to a female gynecologist and, you know, her asking about um, child planning and me being like, well, no, mm, no. And she was like, we'll start taking folic acid anyway, just in case. What? And I'm like, okay, thanks for the, your unsolicited input. <laughs> uh, going against what I just said. Or just other women being the ones being like, oh, oh no, you'll change your mind. Yeah, you will change your mind. Or um, no, like, because my experience was this, yours will be the same. And yeah. Yeah. Like, I almost died giving birth. Like, fuck anyone telling me I have to do it again. I had a miscarriage <laughs> and I almost died. And it was after that where I'm like, ah, good. <laughs> yeah, no, that's enough of that pregnancy <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> it's extremely uncomfortable. Like some women um, really enjoy being pregnant, but it was the most uncomfortable thing I ever did. And like, I literally almost died and I was disabled basically for nine months. So, or more than that, because the recovery took me so fucking long. So like, and I'm never actually going to be fully recovered because my body is permanently changed from the medical issues that I ran into with delivery. Yeah. So like, it's not fair. (laughs) If you're pregnant, your body, no matter what, will be permanently changed because... To put it bluntly, you do have a parasite in you that sucks up a lot of <laughs> that sucks up a lot of your nu- nutrients, and it like weakens your bones. Like yeah. every single woman will have weakened hips, uh, and their bones will not be as thick as they were before they had a baby. My risk for osteoporosis is significantly higher now that I've had a child, and also I've had my gallbladder removed, which they don't—they don't tell you this like at all for the most part. But the statistics say that if you have given birth before, your likelihood of having your gallbladder fail um, so badly to where you need to have it removed is significantly higher. My gallbladder failed two two months after I had my son. And so I had three surgeries in a matter of two months. And all of that as a result of the changes to my body because of pregnancy. I mean, <laughs> fuck anyone that wants me to go through that again. <laughs> it was the yeah. worst. And, and you're coming at it from a, a point of having gone through that in the 21st yeah. century. You'd be dead if we were, you know, we're talking about yeah. the women... You know, we're talking about in the period. There's no way I would have survived childbirth if this were even a hundred years ago. I would not have survived, and my son wouldn't have survived either. Actually, like I would not have been able to give birth. So, like, it's even with our shitty healthcare now and everything. Like, it's not fair at all to make anyone go through this and change their bodies permanently. Like, even on, like, a non-damaging mm-hmm. scale, like, I've had a son. And for the rest of my life, I will actually carry DNA that that isn't mine, um, that is his, be, just because of the way that creating a child with different chromosomes from me works. So, like, my body's permanently changed from the core now that I've had a child. And that, you know, at this level, we don't know that that's any any difference on how you know my quality of living or anything like that 
but like I should be able to have a the say on whether or not I want to permanently change myself at my core and whether or not I want to put myself at significant risk like that. And so like it's absolutely nuts that we don't have that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean what we're seeing as well, like um what was interesting to me is reading through this and all these times where this pressure has been put on women um they're railing against it you know they're finding ways of taking herbs or was it herbs pestries potion to try and have some sort of control um over and autonomy over their own bodies and whether they have children or not and i think that's what we see you know right through to today and you know that saying of you know there are always going to be abortions. It's just whether women have access to safe abortions or not. It's still going to happen. So I will have to say that reading this actually kind of changed the way I feel about all the annoying grandmas (laughs) and moms and shit that give really bad advice when you're pregnant. Because it's like a whole thing. They really do. And like, it's, it's all really bad advice. Like, oh, you know, if you're carrying it this way, then it's a girl. Or if you eat a lot of pickles, it'll be a boy or, you know, I think it's whatever. Anyway, they're all unfounded and non-scientific. But like, for the most part, all of that stuff is really annoying as shit. But now reading this, it makes sense that like, because of the way that our ability to care for ourselves and have autonomy over ourselves for centuries, this was the only way that any information was ever passed. Like, this is grandmas and moms and great grandmas talking about what they did during childbirth was literally the only information access we had. (laughs) So, I mean, I'm still annoyed as shit because they're really bad. It's really bad advice, but like it's, I, I can understand now where the utility and the tradition in this was, and that this has only been a generation or two where we had other ways to find information about pregnancy in our bodies. And so I, I guess, you know, critical support for for generational knowledge of between childbearers, because like that's the only way that children have probably been capable of surviving birth for centuries now. And like I did have something else to say about that, but that's that's good. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, yeah, um, those little like tricks and whatever Federici, I think this kind of does move it forward in the text where we're talking. Federici talks about how, you know, mm. women were still finding ways to, to prevent birth uh, or at least trying to, but then the, oh. the witch hunts actually villainized those things and um, said that they were, you know, things that witches did to, and, and related it to infanticide, which people still do now, um, relating birth control to infanticide. And that's what they were doing. So these women who had found ways to have some control over the reproduction, now all of a sudden there were laws passed that were basically charging them to death um, for using these methods to take control over their own bodies. Yeah, and that'll bring us uh, nicely into the next section, which is land privatization in Europe, the production of scarcity, and the separation of production from reproduction. In this section, Federici opens right up by talking about the two uh, main forms of land expropriation, which were uh, war and religious reform at the time. And we start to see how the Protestant Revolution ended up functioning, or, or the Protestant Reformation, sorry, 
functioned as this bourgeois revolution and a means by which land could be massively confiscated from the church and then privatized and sold off to the wealthiest of uh, this new Protestant upper class. And when we're getting into this, um, I'm just going to read a couple of really good quotes from um, directly from the book, and then we'll get into uh, the the group discussion question that we posed for everybody. So Federici says, beside encouraging collective decision-making and work cooperation, the commons were the material foundation upon which peasant solidarity and sociality could thrive. The social function of the commons was especially important for women, who having less title to land and less social power were more dependent on them for their subsistence, autonomy, and sociality. So this is one of the first um, little ways that we start to see that the concept of the enclosure of the commons, which we're all very familiar with, actually affected women in a, in a more drastic sense that we didn't see analyzed within Marx. And then we go on to, uh, there's a very large section that I'll try and read from without messing up too much, but it's uh, anti-enclosure struggles continued. However, through the Jacobian period, with a noticeable increase in the presence of women. During the reign of James I, about 10% of enclosure riots included women among the rebels. Some were all female protests. In 1607, for instance, 37 women, led by a Captain Dorothy, attacked coal miners working on what women claimed to be the village commons in Thorpe. Uh, more, yet Yorkshire. 40 women went to cast down the fences and hedges of enclosure in Waddingham, in 1608, and in 1609, on a manor of Dunchurch, which is Warwickshire, 15 women, including wives, widows, spinsters, unmarried daughters, and servants, took it upon themselves to assemble at night and to dig up hedges and level the ditches. So we're really seeing how, how women at this time of, of what we've been calling the transition of uh, feudalism to capitalism were really like a very large part of this revolutionary peasantry that was pushing back against what was the brutal terror and enforcement that accompanies this legislative plan to enclose the commons and enclose the bodies of women's as well. So I also highlighted that because it's a badass passage. And but I also highlighted right after it, which I think is even more badass. They said that after leveling the ditches, they said again at York in May 1624, women destroyed an enclosure and went to prison for it. They were said to have enjoyed tobacco and ale after their feet. Then in, six <laughs> then in 1641, a crowd that broke into an enclosed fen at Buckton consisted mainly of women aided by boys. And these were just a few instances of confrontation in which women holding pitchforks and scythes resisted the fencing of the land or the draining of the fens when their livelihood was threatened. So I just thought that was nice. badass. <laughs> but women did not. The, even men dress like women to pull up the fences. Yeah, oh, I just love it. Yeah, and just just to round this section off before we get into the question, we'll we'll see how uh, Federici explains how uh, the devaluation and feminization of reproductive labor was also a disaster for male workers because the devaluation of reproductive labor inevitably devalued its product, which was labor power. And then I have another little quote to read for him, which is, these historic changes that peaked in the 19th century with the creation of the full-time housewife redefined women's positions in society and in relation to men. The sexual division of labor that emerged from it not only fixed women to reproductive work, 
but increase their dependence on men, enabling the state and employers to use the male wage as a means to command women's labor. And that's, that's a great segue into, into our question for this section, which was, in what other ways are the effects of accumulation on women described in this section still going on today? All right. Um, to preface that, I'll also quote uh, the chapter. Uh, the economic importance of the reproductive uh, reproduction of labor power carried out in the home and its function in the accumulation of capital became invisible, being mystified as a natural vocation and labeled women's labor. So Oxfam released a report about six days ago, uh, sort of detailing unpaid care work and how much like hours that is, how much wealth that is. And uh, some statistics that I will not go into, we'll probably put a link for that in the show notes, uh, but I'll just give a few highlights from it to sort of give this a context. So women and girls ages 15 and over, especially those living in marginalized groups, are putting in 12.5 billion hours of care work every day for free. This essential work, which keeps families and communities thriving and healthy, adds an estimate $10.8 trillion of value to the economy, three times that of the tech industry. The data is also an underestimate since it uses minimum wage and not living wage. So when we say care work, or at least in the report, uh, care work includes uh, looking after children, elderly people, and those with physical and mental disabilities as well as daily domestic work like cooking, cleaning, washing, mending, and fetching water and firewood. Now, including the free work at home, poor women are also exploited as domestic workers. Only 10% of domestic workers are covered by general labor laws to the same extent as other workers, and only 50% of those enjoy equal minimum wage protections. Some actually, some national laws also do not have restrictions on uh, work hours. So if you're working for a home, there is no way you can say I only work from nine to five or even from nine to nine or whatever. It's just you're there, you're working. Now, a further thing that's happening currently, too, is that aging populations and cuts in public spending uh, shift the societal responsibility of care work onto the backs of women in a more individualized and atomized form, which further exasperates their exploitation. One of the good examples of this is something that's also relevant to, for example, Soviet Union and the switch to capitalism recently, is there's a documentary on Moldova called Moldova Lost in Translation. And there you see the cutbacks after the fall of the Soviet Union basically meant that the generation of parents that was around 30, 40 years old at that time had to move out of the country to uh, work and send money back. This left the care work of the children they had and taking care of all the property that was there on the backs of the older women, the grandmothers and all that. And there's a big part of that documentary, I'll send the link uh, in a bit, which sort of goes and talks to them and they're all like, we thought we'll finally get rest, but now we have to do all the work that our kids can't do because they have to go out and work. And their work is not paid. They just have to do this every day, taking care of children, taking care of the farms, especially now that the villages are more or less abandoned too. Now, all of this also leads to women and girls being time poor, meaning unable to meet their basic needs or participate in social and political activities. Yes, so as Federici has mentioned before, and 
what the report mentioned is that the dominant model of capitalism actively exploits and drives traditional sexist beliefs that disempower women and girls, counting on them to do this work, but refusing to value them for it. Also, as we all know, but I'll add this, IMF austerity programs have been shown to negatively impact women and threaten to increase inequality. The report actually provides a few sources on that, so if anybody's going to look through it. Uh, one interesting statistic maybe is the only one I'm going to add is 22, the 22 richest men have more wealth than all the women in Africa combined. And their wealth is also practically an aristocratic, uh, like sort of an aristocracy, because there's an, an estimate one third of billionaires' wealth uh, exists so solely due to inheritance. See that the IMF would uh, further inequality. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so Federici does actually mention the World Bank specifically in this too. Oh, yeah. um, she says for workers, they or she's talking about um, the argument about land privatization and how people are saying that it should increase the food supply available to the common people. Um, but she's saying that argument doesn't hold. And then she says for workers, they inaugurated two centuries of starvation in the same way as today, even for the most fertile areas of Africa, Asia and Latin America. Malnutrition is rampant due to the destruction of communal land tenure and the export or perish policy imposed by the World Bank structural adjustment programs. So that's cool. The World Bank's just fantastic. It's <laughs> fun. <laughs> she also goes more into it in her witches, witch hunting, and oh, and I forgot what the last. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she goes a lot more in depth. Uh, I really recommend reading that. Is that a that book. continuation really of Caliban, or is it a? Uh, yeah, it's like an, uh, just updating certain mm -hmm. things. Okay. Uh, it's like a collection of essays on certain topics from Caliban. Yeah, so we're going to read that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so in this section, we're talking about the price revolution. And as uh, Federici stated before, we're examining how the land privatization and the price revolution were aspects of accumulation, but they weren't the end-all, be-all of it. In the In the first section on the price revolution, we're talking about how in the last section, we talked about how the Black Death gave workers this unprecedented amount of power. Uh, they had a whole new buying power with their wage. And then we come into the price revolution, which is, which is a direct reflection of that, is that prices rose because the creation of national and international market systems and the encouragement of exporting agricultural goods and hoarding by merchants. So... At this point in time, we're getting into the mass proletarianization of, of the workers. Uh, we're getting into new, uh, more large-scale farming because all the new aristocracy has bought up mass amounts of land and stolen amount, mass amounts of land. And now we're getting into the new international markets that have arose because of this. And by 1600, real wages in Spain lost 30% of their purchasing power. So while the price of food went up eight times, wages increased only by three. And at this point, uh, the wage collapse was especially disastrous for women because we already had this existing patriarchy within feudalism and this existing chauvinistic wage setup even before the large-scale capitalist accumulation on women. So when wages were lost by all, it, it was a disastrous effect for women. And in the 14th century, uh, women received half the wages of men, but by the 16th century, that was re reduced to one third. 
So uh, women could no longer support themselves by wage work at this point. And this was really about legislatively making women entirely dependent on another. They, they needed to make women's existence totally dependent on men. So they es essentially legislated it so that women's wages, no matter how much they worked, could never sustain them as, as an individual. And if they could find ways to sustain themselves, we see a lot in this text about how they were villainized and ostracized. So in, other, in, in some areas, it was made illegal to have a single or to rent to a single woman and, and all kinds of other legislative effects to make it impossible for women to sustain themselves as wage laborers. So effectively excluding women from this newly forming proletariat. So I would also argue again that, you know, it's weird to see that this was a uh, transition into something like that where there was wage inequality because that's been my entire life. So I'm a white quote unquote woman in America. And that means I make like 76% of, of a standard man in America. But um, women of color in the United States make, what is it, 60 cents or 57 cents on the dollar for a, a man. And yeah. that's, I mean, obviously, just like the argument you just or just like the phrasing you just used, that makes them completely incapable of taking care of themselves independently. And this leaves women, especially this was a boat that I was in um, in the last uh, year and a half or so, where I was trying to escape a situation of abuse, but I had to depend on my partner just so that I didn't have, or so I didn't lose housing, or so I could, you know, have access to food, um, things like that, just because as an individual person and an individual worker, I just don't have the income capacity to make enough money to sustain myself, even even though I'm not in a minimum wage earning capacity position anymore. So like, I mean, that that's still absolutely the standard now. Women are incapable of sustaining themselves economically, and that means most of us stay in um, destructive relationships. And that's why it's been generational where they've reinforced this idea that you have to stay in relationships in order to survive. And, and I mean, even for the longest time, marriage is a, a whole other argument because, I mean, essentially was a trade of commodities. I mean, people literally paid for their wives and that's not really much different now. They're essentially trading for a commodity. Your, your spouse is your commodity. So, um, and especially uh, what Fayez just talked about, you know, giving childcare for absolutely no recognizable value or uh, recognized value is primarily where so much, so much value is created by women that we never see and are in fact expected to be able to sustain otherwise while also doing this labor. So it's absolutely nothing has changed about this. And with the recent, well, it's not even recent anymore, the 2008 crash, most people have just stayed in relationships because... Mm -hmm. It's super expensive to get your own place. It's easier to split everything down the middle. Um, yep. You know, I'm guilty of this. <laughs> like the whole joke is that millennials are polyamorous because we can't afford to live alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not my justification for it, but, <laughs> but it adds up. <laughs> oh, it sucks. It's so, it really does. so bad. Economic independence is like all anyone really wants, right? Like you just want to be yeah. able to do the things that you want to do when you want to do them because they're things you want to do. <laughs> and like, 
that's just not something women are given inherently. And so we apparently have been fighting for several centuries just to have the right to do that. And we're still so far behind. Like, I am 33 and I am just now living on my own and paying for everything on my own. Yeah. <laughs> Took me a fuck long time to get here. And you are arguably, arguably underpaid for your skill set. Oh, I know I am. I'm being paid at least $20,000 less than I should be. Yep. Which is bullshit. And I think that actually brings us really nicely into the next section, which is uh, the state intervention in the reproduction of labor, poor relief, and the criminalization of the working class. So in the way we've uh, just described in which women have been have been themselves pauperized legislatively by keeping their wages below that which could sustain any any individual, we see this slowly being uh, legislated out among the rest of the working class. And that's and that's something we still very much see today, where our wage system is designed to keep people at or just below what is needed to subsist so that it necessitates a criminalization of your working class people. I know there are things in my life, particularly like, I don't know, maybe registering or insuring or inspecting a vehicle, something like that. I just don't do because it's outside of my wage. <laughs> like it's the fact of yep. that is I just I literally just can't afford a car that is nice enough to inspect. And since I can't afford that, why would I pay for a registration? So I'm effectively criminalized for my existence as a worker. Yep. And mm-hmm. this is something that we've seen. First, legislatively done to women and then broadly brought out through this process of large scale accumulation and legislated upon the rest of the entire working class, which is pretty much like a nice summation of this next section. Well, once you've accumulated enough capital off of the unrecognized labor of women, you have enough power to control the masses. Like... That's really what happened is like, they're like, hey, I need like to build some seed money so I can control the people. Let's uh, exploit a couple thousand women um, for a few generations. And holy crap, now I have enough money to tell anybody what to do. And that's kind of the position we've been on. And the amount of people who have enough money to tell what to do is only getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And the amount of money they have is only getting bigger. And the the criminalization of of mm-hmm. poverty, basically, and the anti vagabond laws, which are talked about, obviously, the fact that it's yep. basically illegal to be homeless in in most major cities these days. I mean, just existing yep. is being legislated against, and you're constantly under threat by the police. There are panhandling laws, like you can't even ask yep. for money. Yeah, we also see reinstitution yeah. of debtors' prisons and things like that. Uh, there's a lot of reports in different states. People are fighting back against it, of course, but you know, you see situations where people are cited with something that would be a fine, and it does result in a fine. Um, usually, you know, it's it's some bullshit thing, anyways. You know, like walking down the street with the wrong look on your face, you get a fine by the police for loitering, and then because of you know the precarity in your life or whatever, they're unable to pay that. Well, you know, a judge is now able to send you to jail yeah. or prison. Where you get to uh, do slave labor to pay off those fines. So literally, I've been arrested twice for unpaid tickets, and the uh, okay, so. In 2006, I was speeding 15 miles over in one area. I got pulled over. I didn't have the money to pay for it, so I didn't. A year later, I got pulled over and my license was suspended. And because I hadn't paid my ticket. 
And so I got a ticket for driving while license was suspended and I couldn't pay that ticket. And so I still had to drive to work and I kept going to work and kept using my car, despite the fact that I didn't have a license because I couldn't pay to get it reinstated because I had two tickets that were like totaling uh, 1500 bucks that I couldn't pay to get my license Jesus back. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so um, because a driving while license suspended is a criminal charge i uh eventually i got like three tickets and then they arrested me and impounded my car i wasn't able to take care of it still because i couldn't afford it and um a few years few years later or probably like a year later there was a domestic violence situation the cops were called to my house where my ex had kicked me out of the house and locked me out of my own home and uh Despite the fact that they told him he had to let me come back inside my own home, they arrested me because I had a warrant for driving while license suspended. So despite the fact that I was the victim, um, they arrested me. And I went to jail that night overnight and had to pay bail to get out. And of course, I couldn't afford that. And so I still couldn't afford to pay my tickets. And it was a total of about 10 years um, that I didn't have a driver's license because of this. And I racked up like $3,000 worth of tickets and I stopped driving for like six years um, and just rode the bus everywhere. <sighs> and by the time um, I was able to do something about it, apparently after like eight years of having a ticket for something that's not a felony, it they can't expect you to pay on it anymore. And so I was able to get a lawyer to remove all of my eight-year-old plus tickets off of my record. And that's the only reason that I can drive now legally. Literally, I was a fucking criminal for a decade because I sped once and couldn't afford to take care of it. I went to jail twice, like paid bail. I paid hundreds of dollars just to get into a program to allow me to pay, pay my tickets on payments instead of all at once. Hundreds of dollars. This isn't even like a random thing. This is common. That's the primary, like my city has a relicensing program because they prey on poor people who can't get their licenses reinstated. And so they have so many people that need assistance that it's just a whole ass program that you have to pay to get into that the city just pockets. Yeah, I mean, it's very on its face. It's, it's purely extractive. It's not even really trying to hide it. The, the no. legal system we exist under is very clearly designed to criminalize poverty for the purpose of enforcing fines. And if not fines, I mean, that's, that's what most white folks but can expect. But if, if you right. are a shade darker than eggshell, then you can expect those fines to turn into jail time, which turns into literal slave labor, to literal ex extractive slave labor from, from prison labor. So this whole system is very deliberately designed to criminalize our existence and through that criminalization to be extractive, to find wealth, to pay for and justify its own existence for the continued criminalization of our existence. So like it's, it's this cyclical parasite that we have to exist under. And Federici explains how it has these three main objectives, how it's about creating a more disciplined workforce, how it's about diffusing social protest, and it's about fixing workers to the jobs that, that are imposed on them. So through this criminalization pro uh, process, our individual freedom of choice, our social mobility, our literal physical mobility is all being pushed back against through this legislative criminalization of poverty. This is actually a really important point of history when this starts happening, because at this point in time, we see the first introduction of 
public assistance from government. And as Marxists, this is really important is in this in this stage of accumulation that the state is now recognizing itself as a means of mediating this inevitable conflict between classes. This it's 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 the state finally showing itself as the mediator of class so, conflict uh, about you know fines and taxes being placed on working people that actually that actually does in a way create surplus value because it allows the state to function without the capitalist class having to pay for it so that's just kind of a roundabout way of allowing them to keep more surplus value by not having to fund the services that are paid for on the backs of the working class that's a great point. Yeah, so I think in the last episode of Capital, we talked a little bit, a little bit about the introduction of laws criminalizing the poor. And as far as the criminalization of poverty persists to this yeah. day, we talked a little bit about begging licenses, including the introduction of a begging license in Eskilstuna in Sweden, where they've like, I think it was in August of last year, they introduced a begging license, which you needed to pay something like 30 bucks for. And if you didn't have it and you got caught begging, you'd be fined something like $450, I think it was. Yeah, and this was like a new law that's just come into effect. But as well as new laws, there's also older ones, such as in um, in the UK, we've got the Vagrancy Act 1824. And this was introduced pretty much as like a, a bit of a catch-all piece of legislation, which covered like rough sleeping, begging, and pretty much any activity which poor people could, you know, naturally find themselves doing because they're poor. It was pretty much anything that they were like, we don't like seeing on the streets. We're going to just throw that into the legislation and we can arrest you for that too. So this law got updated in 1898 and the 1898 Vagrancy Act prohibited soliciting or importuning for immoral purposes, which originally was meant to be used as a measure against prostitution, but in practice, it was pretty much only used um, to convict gay men for having sex. Yeah. Well, yeah, because the thing is, this like really archaic law is still in effect. And in the last few years, since, as Talia mentioned, with the 2008 financial crash, we've actually been seeing like a large Jesus. increase in the number of arrests under this like 200-year-old law. And so just to kind of, yeah, it's insane. And so just to kind of tie it into one of the broader themes of the book, which is control over women's lives and bodies. Last year, I went with my mm. renters' union to provide evidence what? and testimony to Philip Alston, who is the um, he's the special rapporteur for poverty with the UN. And he was kind of traveling around the UK, like impoverished areas of the UK at the time, so like Scotland, Newcastle, and he met us and like he just met the public in Newham, which is where we were operating, London Borough of Newham, where like one in twenty-four people are homeless at the moment, and. Yeah, among the testimonies we heard, we heard from women who were being harassed by landlords who were like coming into their homes mm. while they were asleep, uh, disabled women who were unable to work, but they were denied benefits, so they were forced into sex work to survive. There were women fleeing abusive partners who were left penniless because their benefits were being paid into their partner's account, because now we have like economic abuse enshrined into our welfare system under universal credit. We had... Um, Women who had their abusive partners take custody of their children because they couldn't afford legal support. Yeah, it's 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 just so bad. And there was there was also a West African migrant woman who's gone to the council with a baby in arms, with absolutely nothing, asking for help, and she was turned away. And hey, that's me. She was telling us about how she was forced out of hunger to like drink her own breast milk just to God. just to survive. 
among that, there was like stories of people using food banks, there's stories of homelessness yeah. and suicide. And almost everyone who spoke at that meeting was a woman, which adds up because in the UK, at least, I think it's 86% of the burden of austerity has fallen on top of women. And like, I don't have the figures for other countries, but I really wouldn't be surprised to see that figure replicated. It's definitely the same in America. Yeah. So basically this rapporteur from the UN, he said in his findings that if you've got a group of misogynists in a room and said, how can we make this system work for men and not for women? Yeah. They would not have come up with too many ideas that aren't already in place. So my point is basically like, while there's not always technical criminalization of poverty, because of all these factors feeding into each other, at the same time as this kind of sanctity of private property and the right to draw profit from it under capitalism, there's an ever-present looming threat of homelessness controlling women's lives. And because of that 1824 Vagrancy Act, once you become homeless, once you've reached that point of poverty, your very existence is criminalized. So even if you're not homeless yet and you're quote-unquote illegal because you're homeless, you're like always living in this fear of being mm. driven into that. And just to kind of add to that as well, like this is in the UK, which is one of the richest countries in the world. And obviously the wealth of the UK and its social welfare programs have all been funded through centuries of colonialism yeah. and imperialism. So while the social safety net is like being really quickly eroded in the UK, there are many, many parts of the world where even these predictions, uh, even these protections don't exist or like never existed to start with. When I worked, um, I used to work in the criminal courts and I would do uh, public defender intake interviews. Right. Um, most of them were women who were homeless and they'd explain to me who they were living with under bridges. And they'd usually have to spend their nights with guys who abused them, but they stayed with them because living under a bridge, that guy would protect them from other people. Like, it's just, it's just insane. And like, even with one of my jobs, my boss, even though it's illegal, would not hire people who had kids. Yep. Would not hire women who had kids. And women who have children and that work there would get penalized for missing work because they had a sick kid. They get treated way differently. Yep. So it's a documented dynamic in the United States, at least, that once a woman has had a child, their earning potential goes down at least 30%. And your higher ability goes down, I would argue, significantly more than that. And I mean, I saw that firsthand, but it's not just my anecdotal situation that proves this. It's, it's well documented. But uh, writing on to what Talia mentioned about homeless women, I spent the last two months working in a low barrier warming center, which is, um, you know, basically what most people recognize as a homeless shelter. But we don't kick anybody out for being LGBT or being high or drunk or any of those things or having a record or not wanting to show me their ID or having an ID. Um, so low barrier is the right word for it. But what I saw every single day were people that banded together for protection and they would stay with people who could keep them relatively safe. There was one girl whose boyfriend was just an entire piece of shit. She definitely 
was only with him for access to drugs and so that she didn't get assaulted by other people. And that was pretty common. There were times where she would break the rules and get herself kicked out, which the only rules that got people kicked out were ones that put people in safety issues. So she would get herself kicked out and she'd come back because she's like, I don't want to be gone without him. And he didn't give a shit and he would stay all night and she'd just be out there like terrified knowing something was going to happen to her. And that's just a regular thing. Like they had a fight where like she stabbed him and like they were still traveling together the next day that she got out of prison for it. And because they needed to band together for protection, like he gave her or she gave him what he wanted, which was basically access to her body. And she got protection and access to drugs. And like, I can't blame her at all for doing that because she had the physical need of, of physical safety and the physical need to have access to drugs. She was not in a position to not need that. I'm not going to judge whether or not she should be doing that, but because everybody should not be in a position to where like, it doesn't, doesn't justify the fact that her safety was compromised just because she's a drug addict. But that is a regular, regular occurrence. Every couple that I saw in there was basically together because it was safer that way for all of them. And genuinely, it's usually that the man got something beneficial out of out of protecting her. So like it's it's a common dynamic among these women that as soon as you become homeless, you find somebody to protect you because you're not okay alone. Like, you just are not okay alone. They're, like, when people would get kicked out and leave in the middle of the night, other women would be like, she's not okay, you know that. Like, like I hope someone finds her. Stuff like that. Like, they're not okay, and they know that. I've had so many women there come up and tell me how, like, they need to be with this man because they're not safe otherwise, even though he's shit. So, basically, you're stuck being what level of unsafe do you want to be? So like in this, the end of this section, we've kind of seen, or even just through this discussion, we've seen how even our, our social welfare programs are designed to chauvinistically keep women tethered to men. But at the same time, they, they are also about enabling employers to relinquish any responsibility for the reproduction of the workers in a certainty that the state would either respond with the carrot or, or the stick. And like our our question for this week was how does the criminalization of poverty still affect us today, which I think everybody covered pretty phenomenally just now. I think we went into that very in depth, but it's very interesting to see how we see that the state has has through legislation and through this this new social welfare system is that's what you want to call it has has showed itself as the mediator of class relations. While at the same time, this this structurally has kept workers tethered to their jobs and kept women tethered to men just for, for their existence. Right. I read a story about three people in France who were found guilty of theft for dumpster diving. And they had seven 100 liter bin bags full of perished food, which like included it had like foie gras and like fancy French cheese and all of that. But um. Yeah, so eventually they were released through a provision in the criminal codes because the the lawyer argued that if they weren't going to eat this stuff, they were going to die. And in France, there is some some provision in the criminal code, which means if you're acting to do with your safety or something, you can't be punished for that. I, I don't know exactly how it works, but it's something to that effect. But they were found guilty and it could have resulted in a punishment of up oh to God. seven years imprisonment, imprisonment 
and a 100,000 euro fine. And yeah, additionally, another one in France is an amendment was made in late 2018 to a law known as the Treve Hivernale, which is like a winter truce. And basically this law is in place so that landlords can't evict tenants who are behind on their rent between the 1st of November and the 31st of March. And it was amended specifically so that it excludes squatters from the truce. And the reason this affects, I mean, obviously people are squatting generally are poor as well, but one thing that happens a lot in France is that people, more migrants and people who are working with migrants would routinely, they would squat buildings so as to host as many people as possible because obviously people trying to, for example, reach the UK through France wouldn't have anywhere to stay. And on top of that, the CRS, which is like French, kind of like French riot police or something like that, they would routinely go around and destroy the camps of migrants and steal all their possessions, leaving them with nothing. So, yeah, it's just another law which is there. Specifically, it's been amended so that um, just to punish people for being poor or to punish them for being from somewhere else, which is a- another thing we will be seeing more and more of, I imagine, as climate crisis kind of climate and economic crises tighten. That reminds me of how um, recently. Southern Arizona have been being prosecuted but, uh, because they left water for immigrants coming over the border. Yeah. So, yeah, similar thing. Yeah, no more deaths. I can't believe he got away with that, too. Like, they let him go. I think they used religion. I think they used religion as the argument. The defense attorneys used, like, this was God part of it. his religious practice. And that's like, that's how he got away with it. So whatever, yeah. like at least he got away with it. It's like <laughs> they, they, no, no yeah. more deaths Me does too. amazing work. All right, so I'll kick us off into the next section, which is population decline, economic crisis, and the disciplining of women. And uh, we open up this section by talking about how uh, right after the conquest, the population of South America had declined by seventy-five million or ninety-five percent. And what that means is it's about to usher in a new period of accumulation on women, much like happened after the uh, the Black Plague. Because when when the bourgeois state sees this great decline in population, or they feel that their population of workers is threatened, they immediately must respond with an accumulation on women because somehow they see it as them exercising some undue autonomy over their bodies. Or, or it, so it, it legislates or it ushers in a new legislative period of accumulation on women in that area. So I thought this was interesting pretty close to the beginning of the chapter. She's talking about population crises and kind of like with the Black Death where death struck at the poor. It was not the rich for the most part who perished when the plague or the small or smallpox swept the towns, but craftsmen, day laborers, and vagabonds. And that they died in such numbers that their bodies paved the streets and the authorities denounced the existence of a conspiracy instigating the population to hunt for the malefactors. But the population decline was also blamed on low natality rates and the reluctance of the poor to reproduce themselves. So I thought that was interesting because now she says... That we know by the end of the 16th century, the age of marriage was increasing in all social classes, and that in the same period, the number of abandoned children, a new phenomenon, started to grow. So um, people were not having children. They were abandoning children. People were dying in the streets. And so this is kind of what instigated that response to population crisis. 
Yeah, and Federici, uh, or actually, no, uh, she quotes Eli Heckscher, uh, who states that an almost fanatical desire to increase population prevailed in all countries during the period when mercantilism was at its height in the later part of the 17th century. So, like, we're seeing this direct connection between the rise of the, the more capitalist state and the rise of these legislative, you know, attacks on the bodies of women. And there's this quote here, too, that I feel like uh, is just another iteration of the, you know, the same thing we've said over and over again. But um, the quote says, whatever their weakness is, women possess one virtue that cancels them all. They have a womb and they can give birth. And that <laughs> that kind of uh, is where women kind of reduced to in these situations of population crisis. It's, it looks like she's kind of demonstrated this at least um, a couple times over when population is is in crisis, then all of a sudden women are like, eh, we hate women, but they got wombs and that's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <don't you> read them. <laughs> yeah it, actually on pages 88 and 89, I have a bunch of points that I'd like to just read off that are, that are all about, yeah, it's all about these direct legislative attacks on the bodily autonomy of women and how the state viewed any semblance of of individual determination <laughs> as a threat to its its you know its plan to build this more highly exploitable working class. So in the 16th century Nuremberg, the penalty for mater- maternal infanticide was drowning. In 1580, the year in which in which severed heads of three women convicted of maternal infanticide were nailed to the scaffold for public contemplation, the penalty was changed to beheading. England and Scotland in 1624 and 1690, a system of spies was also created to surveil unwed mothers and deprive them of any support. Even hosting unmarried pregnant women was made illegal. The statutes limiting women's legal responsibility were lifted. Thus, women walked for the first time into the courtrooms of Europe in their own name as legal adults under the charge of being witches and child murderers. With this shift, a new medical practice also prevailed, one that in the case of medical emergency prioritized the life of the fetus over that of the mother, which sounds very familiar to, pe- to how people want to view it today. In France and Germany, midwives had to become spies for the state if they wanted to continue their practice. In Protestant countries and towns, neighbors were supposed to spy on women and report all relevant sexual details. In Germany, women were punished if they did not make enough of an effort during child delivery or showed little enthusiasm for their offspring. While in the Middle Ages, women had been able to use various forms of contraceptives and exercise an undisputed control over the birthing process, from now on, their wombs became public territory, controlled by men and the state, and procreation was directly placed at the service of capitalist accumulation. In this sense, it is the condition of the enslaved women that most explicitly reveals the truth and logic of capitalist accumulation. Treated as natural breeding machine, functioning according to rhythms outside of women's control, this aspect of primitive accumulation is absent in Marx's analysis. So interestingly, I have even more highlighted. <laughs> so Get after it. She, uh, she talks about kind of how we got to there. So she says that a new concept of human beings also took hold, picturing them as just raw materials, workers and breeders for the state. Then she also says the family was given a new importance as the key institution providing for the transmission of property and the reproduction of the workforce. 
And she says that, as we will later see in this volume, this war was waged primarily through the witch hunt that literally demonized any form of birth control and non-procreative sexuality while charging women with sacrificing children to the devil. But it also relied on the redefinition of what constitutes a reproductive crime. And then also, she says that suspicion under which midwives came in this period, leading to the or leading to the entrance of the male doctor into the delivery room, stemmed more from the authorities' fears of infanticide than from any concern with the midwives' alleged medical incompetence. Which is interesting now, given that midwifery is a totally different medical qualification, and that people consider them less capable of uh, navigating pregnancy than in OBGYN. Um, but realistically, um, mm -hmm. the biggest change in care is that you're more likely to have a woman if you choose to have a midwife. So I did have a midwife myself because of that. But I thought that was interesting, showing that the uh, recognition of the family as the means of creating more workforce and minimizing workers to just essentially raw materials of creating more work, more workers is kind of how we got to those to the justification for the total control over reproductive behavior. And that men coming into the childbirth medical realm um, changed, I would argue, likely drastically changed the level of care that was that uh, women were experiencing at the time during childcare. Uh, I had something highlighted near the end of this chapter that I thought was good. Um, uh, at the time of the capitalist takeoff, when the muscles and bones of workers were the primary means of production, but even later down to the present, the state has spared no efforts in its attempt to wrench from women's hands to control over reproduction and to determine which children should be born, where, when, or in what numbers. Consequently, women have often been forced to procreate against their will and have experienced an alienation from their bodies, their labor, and even their children, deeper than that experienced by any other workers. I highlighted that too. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> I do appreciate her saying Marx never acknowledged that procreation could become a, ter a terrain of exploitation and by the same token, a terrain of resistance. All right, so we'll we'll jump right into the, the next section, which is the devaluation of women's labor. And in this section, we've come from uh, seeing how the criminalization of contraception expropriated women from knowledge that had been transmitted from generation to generation and taking away any sort of bodily autonomy over childbirth. And by denying women this control over their bodies, the state deprived them of the most fundamental conditions for the physical and psychological well-being of, of an individual. So we're, we're really starting to see these, the social effects that these, these legislative attacks on the bodies of women have really brought forth. At this point in time, we're starting to see how, how women's work is starting to be declared as non-work. Uh, we're seeing that uh, domestic work, housekeeping, all these things that are, are needed to be done to reproduce workers and families and, and just, you know, keep human beings alive. When women do it, it's now being seen as domestic work or, or housekeeping, whereas if a man does it in the same exact context, it's considered labor. So now the only time in which women are being paid 
for this quote unquote housekeeping work or, or domestic work is when they're doing it in the houses of upper class families and never inside of their own. And home. doesn't she specifically mention that in those situations, usually it's the husband that received the wage for the wife's work? Absolutely. Uh, that's actually uh, really heavily covered in uh, the next section, I believe. Is it the next section? Or no, I, there's the next section is uh, Women the New Commons. But that's that's really well covered in, in the patriarchy of wage is where we see through disallowing women from becoming part of the new proletariat by binding them to men and by making their wages un, unpaid that they're now effectively only getting their wages through the men. So even when like a woman does uh, farm work alongside her husband, the husband is receiving effectively both yeah. their wages as the women's wage is now long or work is now considered just domestic housework and no longer has any value. So I thought something was interesting with this section. Um, how many of you have heard the idea of, you know, so-and-so wears the pants in the relationship? Right. Yeah. So they talked about how the, uh, like the, the picture in this section shows a, a woman with her breasts out, of course, because she's vile and vulgar. But it says, uh, like the battle for the britches, the image of the domineering wife challenging the sexual hierarchy and beating her husband was one of the favorite targets of 16th and 17th century social literature. Federici says, um, there is evidence that the wave of misogyny that by late 15th century was mounting in the European cities reflected in the male obsession with the battle for the britches and with the character of the disobedient wife pictured in the popular literature in the act of beating her husband or riding on his back emanated also from this self-defeating attempt to drive women from the workplace and from the market. So yeah, that's the, where that started. <laughs> cool. We still do that. Yeah. Yeah. Just a directly, just, just saying, nope, nope. Women are no longer the work that they do no longer has. It's just a, a total legal, like dis disallowing them um, from basic, you know, existence from, from allowing them to be considered full humans. And I think that's a, a lot of why, Federici in this text draws parallels between the struggle of women at the time and the struggle of slaves in the colonies. And in, in the next section, I think it's really interesting. It's uh, women, the new commons and the substitute for lost land. She talks about how we, we start defining women's only in terms of who they're in relation to, in to, basically in relation to the men they are in relation to. So now women, instead of being workers, they're mothers, they're wives, daughters, widows and these are all like ways of describing that are that that are intentionally designed to hide their status as workers and to give men free access to their bodies their labor and the bodies and labor of their children also like when a woman would take a man's name after marriage just another way of tying them to like their relation to a man absolutely and then then we're uh, gonna get into the next section which is the patriarchy i i mean i thoroughly enjoyed reading this section because it so clearly defines the way that the woman worker has been economically tied to the men. And like we said earlier, that their their wage, now that it's being completely unpaid, it's being paid upon the men. So this is why we're talking about women's bodies as the new commons, because as a substitute for taking away this common land from all the workers, they've effectively tried to quell the revolutionary potential of this new forming proletariat by offering them the bodies of women and their labor. It goes on with, um, with her statement that the only way that capitalism can possibly work and that the workers can accept it, they are divided, 
and if into winners and losers that the you know the winners or the what I call the labor aristocracy in a sense have a although they have a material interest against capitalism they also have a material interest in maintaining it in a way because they are kind of the they have the, the upper hand within the working class. Yeah, it's like what you saw a bit in the early trade union movement as well. It's like misogyny was stronger than class solidarity. So men would be happy to not accept women into the trade union movement so long as they were like still above women, as long as they weren't like as low as you could go. I guess you maybe see a similar parallel in like early feminism as well, where like white feminists would happily kind of cozy up to men rather than accept black women into their circles. Yeah, I was just going to say that <laughs> someone queue up that photo of uh, the, the woman at the uh, pussy hat protest with the sign that says white women voted for Trump. <laughs> That's gross. Uh, it's true, though. They did. But yeah, um, as far as the section on the patriarchy of wage goes, we've talked about how uh, even though the woman worked side by side with her husband, he was now paid for her wage. And and then going further, we start to see coming back from how earlier and I think it was the, the 16th or 15th century that women were first brought into courtrooms under their own autonomy just so they could be tried as witches. Um, now we're seeing that there is a, a rolling back of this. And now there was policy preventing women from having any money of their own. Women were uh, denied access to, to any kind of banks or having any kind of uh, legal rep representation. So now this, this brought their conditions for their subjection to men to like a new high. It, it created this even greater contradiction where women denied a wage and they're denied any kind of means of holding money to further tie them to men so that men could extract wage from them as a justification for this new enclosure of the commons. Which actually will bring us uh, nicely into our number three for this week. Yeah, all of these aspects of accumulation from Marx's explanation and Capital Volume 1 were absent. How does this change how we understand the concept of primitive accumulation? Drastically. I mean, it makes it so apparent that it's still happening with the way that capitalism has become so strong. Absolutely. We, and we see very clearly that how we already understood that primitive accumulation is always ongoing. Calling it primitive is almost a misnomer because it's happening right now. And further, uh, Federici takes us further with this in that we see that uh, there's always going to be a resurging need for this accumulation on women based on the um, bourgeois state's concerns about population. So I think that's something we actually still see a little bit of today, or actually a lot of today, when we see this new wave of misogyny and fascism. I think that a lot of that is about reaffirming this uh, accumulation on women and trying to, to have a new wave of accumulation going forward. No, I agree. I think it's a weird thing because, you know, a lot of conservatives believe that, you know, the, the idea of overpopulation, right? But also there's this idea that the wealth of a nation is tied down to its reproduction. And in the United States specifically, our reproduction rate is super low right now. And their boomers complain about millennials not wanting to have kids because, you know, we're obstinate children or whatever, even though we're 25 or older. But uh, there is essentially a crisis, quote unquote, of population right now in the United States. And because we are 
we tie our value as a nation to our ability to make new workers. And we're not making new workers right now. So I would argue that this is why we're revisiting things like Roe v. Wade right now and why the GOP is hammering so hard to get new Supreme Court justices appointed. And it's because they want to be able to change things like the Supreme Court decisions on whether or not we have a right to our own body. And I think that's, you know, that the idea of controlling women's bodies has been, you know, obviously ongoing for centuries. But in the United States, I do think that there's an influx in that. And I think it is directly related to the idea that our our nation's value is declining because we're not making more workers. Right. I, th- I can't remember where it was. I think it might have been reading Rosa Luxemburg, but she talks a lot about how like back then, like a, a core piece of the bourgeois political economy was this idea that like, the wealth of the nation was directly proportional to the population of the nation. So yeah, that's certainly coming back around again today. Yeah, it's one of the things that I really felt um, tied a lot of this, you know, uh, <laughs> what you you might consider ancient history to directly to what we're experiencing today is all of these um, anxieties around population uh, that white nationalists have in, in that we're seeing today. These these sort of uh, resurgent movements. Um, are directly tied to this patriarchal control of, of women's bodies um, as wrapped in sort of this, uh, you know, economic control of, of uh, you know, the, the, the means of reproduction. Um, it's, you know, it's the same shit. <laughs> it's, this, it's the same goddamn thing. This might be a hot take, but I don't think it is. <laughs> I would actually, I would actually argue that the concept of primitive ac- accumulation, if it were more developed in Marxism during the Russian Revolution, um, and if Lenin and Stalin were armed with the ideas of primitive accumulation, particularly exploiting women as means of production for the working class. I think maybe we wouldn't have run into issues that echoed um, centuries of misogyny and exploitation of women, even in places that liberated the working class as much as the USSR did. So, yeah, I think the idea of women as a means of production for the workforce was still heavily recognized at the time. And I think that's why there wasn't more progress done in the USSR. And there were people talking about it, but um, guess what? Guess what? They were women. So, um. yeah. <laughs> I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. This is one of the reasons Kolontai was sidelined, right? It's 100 percent why Kolontai was sidelined. <laughs> Everything oh. I read, I'm like, oh, okay. So the the main thing is they they said that she challenged the idea of the family, and what she was challenging is exactly this that the family was the means of exploitation of um, women and the working class because it was only designed to make more workers. It was only that the focus of relationships was only on making more children and that that wasn't the way to to go about having relationships at all. And that it wasn't fair to tie women to this um, and say that it was either... or that, that you're... Essentially, she was fighting back against the idea that that a woman's... I don't know, calling essentially is to be a mother and to be part of a family because that was still recognized at the time. And um, the pushback was that she was asserting that and that was not acceptable, specifically that Lenin did not like that. 
So critical support for Lennon. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I think it's important for us to recognize that because as much as there was so much progress for the working class as a whole, there's still this giant gap of exploitation that they were still depending on to to accumulate labor from women. So um, we as people who consider ourselves Marxist Leninists and a lot of us would love to consider ourselves in revolutionary capacity. We need to understand that any society we build moving forward cannot have that. We cannot just view wombs as means of production and women as wombs. Like we just can't do that. So um, I'm really glad that we as a group are doing this. And especially because most of us in this group probably don't have wombs. So I'm super glad that, I don't know, that this knowledge is proliferating and that we can you know, continue. Like, I want to make this a commonplace thing that we talk about in Marxist circles, because we can't just be moving forward with changing society and keeping this exact same misogynistic framework that has still existed in so many ways. And in fact, all the stuff I'm reading about Kollontai and Armand and um, Zetkin and Luxembourg, and overwhelmingly, Germany was far more progressive about women's issues as a whole, you know, the women question than the USSR was. And specifically, they pushed back against Kollontai because she wanted a wanted the USSR to address women's issues of, you know, morality or position in the family or um, as workers, like the way that Germany did. And so nobody really liked that. And, And she got exiled. So I don't know. I just, we need to keep reading because the more that I'm reading, the more that I'm understanding the way to work through these problems and the way that they have already been addressed and what information we can use moving forward. So being a socialist does not mean that you automatically reactionary viewpoints. And that's something that needs to be always, always combated. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) No, absolutely not. Yeah. And actually, I, th- I think this actually brings us really interestingly into the next section, because after this period of accumulation in the 16th and 17th century, we're talking about how women's lives were now entirely in the hands of men, like the, the feudal peasants, were, their lives were in the hands of uh, their feudal lords. And we're seeing how this, in the next section, we're talking about a lot of the, the social effects of this. Before, we, we've been talking about these legislative means of taking away women's wages and infantilizing them legally. But in the next section, we're going to be talking about how socially women got redefined. And just because the USSR may have made great strides in trying to deal with some of these legislative effects that they did not effectively attack these deeply entrenched chauvinistic social tropes that were specifically designed during this period of accumulation for what the next section is titled as for the taming of women and the redefinition of femininity and masculinity women the savages of Europe. tiny supplemental hot take the reason i mentioned the ussr is because after the war and the population declined so drastically that's when abortion was recriminalized and that's when criminalization of non-procreative sex in lgbt populations was uh implemented so this does echo uh federici's argument that population decline uh, creates a need for control over reproductive behavior. So, sorry, moving forward. Uh, absolutely, though. That is that is a great point. <laughs> but moving yeah. forward, we're talking about how in the 
16th and 17th century, women lost ground in every aspect of social life. With social and economic uh, devaluation, women experienced a process of legal infantilization. And at this point, we're talking about how women were, were being socially isolated. So now it's being frowned upon for a woman to visit her family too much after she's been married, to spend too much time with friends. And that's when, actually, I think this is, uh, Federici talks about this is the time when the term gossip, which used, used to just mean a friend you talk to, started taking on the negative connotations that we know today. Oh, specifically meant a female friend. Oh, yes. Yeah. So the word female friend is now a bad word. This is, yeah. And that's, yeah, something that still goes on today. And, and people don't, this is an effect of the accumulation on women in, a, in the social realm. I think last week I talked a little bit about how anytime that there's going to be a process of accumulation, whether it be specifically on women, whether it be on workers or colonized people, there, there always has to be an accompanying, essentially a reign of terror that it's going to affect as this buffer period so that you can't take away the value of a woman's body without enforcing violence on those who push back for a long enough time that this devaluation becomes totally socially accepted. So this is, this is where we're going to get into how the, the violence of colonialism and the violence of accumulation on women have a lot of parallels and how the struggles of the colonized and the struggles of, of women have a lot of parallels as well because they both have to be accompanied by this, this reign of violence. At the end of the section uh, about taming of women, I just thought this was a quote that painted the timeline well. Um, she says that by the time the witch hunt, or by the time of the witch hunt, women had been portrayed as savage beings, mentally weak, insatiably lusty, rebellious, insubordinate, incapable of self-control. By the 18th century, the canon had been reversed. Women were now depicted as passive, asexual beings, more obedient, more moral than men, capable of exerting a positive moral influence on them. And that's actually how you see that that's the direct line from there to our modern social construct around around women. Mm -hmm. and, and I think um, even today, I mean, you do see the original construct kind of popping back up depending on the circumstance. So I think the you know, the social view of what women are changes and is flexible yeah. in order to maintain the patriarchal system. Yeah, it's really frustrating that people have these views of women, but they don't know where they originated from. And Federici also talks about how this is the point in time where they constructed new gendered prototypes, essentially, a more masculine male prototype and a more, or quote unquote, more feminine female proto prototype. So this is these social prototypes around like, who we are and who we're supposed to be were constructed over time through this process of legislation, violence, and social reinforcement. Thank God we don't have that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. Yeah, that can bring us nicely into the next section, which is colonization, globalization, and women. And at this point, more than 17,000 tons of gold have been extracted by Europe uh, from South and Central America by 1640, but the true wealth was the labor accumulated here through the slave trade, which made the possible this new mode of production. So here we're talking about how the extraction of gold was really important, sure, it's something that the bourgeois historians like to focus on at the time, 
but the real wealth of this accumulation through colonization was the stolen labor and and quite literally the stolen people and and the slaves that were taken from Africa and brought to the colonies. Right, because I mean, where did the gold come from? Did the gold Brazil. did they just find and say, oh, we'll just put this in my pocket and bring it back to Europe? No, it came from Brazil. Labor had to be done, but labor had to be done. The reason yeah. they got the gold is because of labor. Right. And it's really important at this point to to know that because we're seeing that this slave system that's that's taking hold in um, the colonies at this point is very specifically designed for the purpose of the reproduction of the European workforce while keeping the enslaved workers and the waged workers geographically and socially isolated so that there could be no sense of solidarity built at the time. Right. She says um, it's now established that the plantation system fueled the Industrial Revolution and said that, but capitalism may not have taken off without Europe's annexation of America and the blood and sweat that for two centuries flowed to Europe from the plantations. She says this must be stressed as it helps us realize how essential slavery has been for the history of capitalism and why periodically but systematically whenever the capitalist system is threatened by a major economic crisis, the capitalist class has to launch a process of primitive accumulation that is a process of large-scale colonization and enslavement, such as the one we're witnessing at present. And I just want to read, it's quite a significant paragraph, the very last paragraph of this section, but it's it's really important inside. So Federici says, it is for this reason that starting in the 1640s, the accumulation of enslaved proletariat in the South, Southern American colonies and the Caribbean was accompanied by the construction of racial hierarchies, thwarting the possibility of such combinations. Laws were passed depriving Africans of previously granted civic rights, such as citizenship, the right to bear arms, and the right to make depositions or seek redress in tribunal for injuries suffered. The turning point was when slavery was made a hereditary condition, and the slave masters were given the right to beat and kill their slaves. In addition, marriage between blacks and whites were forbidden. Later, after the American War of Independence, white indentured servitude, deemed a vestige of British rule, was eliminated. As a result, by the late 18th century, colonial America had moved from a society with slaves to a slave society and the possibility of solidarity between Africans and whites had been severely undermined. White in the colonies became not just a badge of social and economic privilege, serving to designate those who until 1650 had been called Christians and afterwards English or free men, but a moral attribute, a means by which social hegemony was naturalized. Black or African, by contrast, became synonymous with slave, so much so that free black people still a sizable presence in the early 17th century, were later forced to prove that they were free. I think there's something interesting about, just a little, uh, a little side note of how race was constructed. You read right now how people were, were used to refer to as Christian and then, and then as English and then after some time probably as white. That was not a thing that existed in that time like even like at the beginning of the slave trade where there was solidarity between slave workers and uh, like in, indentured servitude like serfs in the colonies and that they had like a similar social standing and therefore could have solidarity but then like how much ideology is going to get pumped into the population to keep them apart and then to easily to more easily oppress them 
Yeah, and, and what Federici's doing here is is she's showing us how what we discussed in the last section, how these means of changing the social paradigm around what is is feminine and what is a woman can also be applied to how they had to construct this idea of what is white and what is what is black or what is non-white. So like we're seeing how they have these desired social outcomes, social and economic outcomes, and they get those legislatively through violence and through the normalization of these social positions that they are now mediating people into based on gender, based on race, based on sexual identity, all these things. So moving on to DT's point there, she does talk about the members of the European proletariat that had come to the Americas as indentured servants or workers, like transportation workers, and that they they had been promised essentially um, like experiencing the commons again, that there was a wonderland where people lived free from toil and tyranny, masters and greed, and where mine and thine had no place and all things were held in common. And there was a quote that she put in here that says, um, once these people came here and uh, lived with their, um, oh, I guess I should say. So when they came here, they worked with the uh, native population as well. And there's a quote specifically about the proletariat that had come here and the native population. And it says, no argument, no entreaties, no tears could persuade many of them to leave their Indian friends. On the other hand, Indian culture Indian children have been carefully educated among the English, clothed and taught. Yet there is not one instance that any one of these would remain but return to their own nations. So I thought that was interesting that um, native children never remained um, when the English stole them, educated them, quote unquote, and tried to change them. Um, not a one, not one of them wanted to stay, but every member of the proletariat that came and lived with the Indians did, could not be convinced to leave. So that has to say something about <laughs> being kidnapped, right? <laughs> like all of the children we stole wanted to go back home. It's so weird. <laughs> we just don't get it. Jesus. Yeah. We've tried yeah. everything. <laughs> We've tried nothing and it hasn't worked out. Can't you help us, Doc? <laughs> and I think that that'll bring us nicely into our next next section, which is uh, sex, race, and class in the colonies. So we've just discussed how, like sexism, racism had to be legislated and enforced. And in the 1660s, the witch hunt had um, passed in Europe, but was revived in the Americas. So while we had this this round of accumulation that happened after the Great Plague in Europe. That had not, not never to say that it came to an end, but it became less, or the contradictions were lessened. A new wave of accumulation had to happen in the Americas, and through colonization, we see that the witch hunts are revived in the form of of villainizing not just women but also the enslaved populations. So we talked about how race was established as a key factor in the transmission of private property. And this is where we get the, the concept that we're all uh, familiar with now, which is the concept of blood quantum and using any degree of what they would call racial, racial miscegenation as a means of denying people access to any kind of property. So much like women had their access to, to wages 
and legal representation taken from them after the accumulation in Europe. Now we're seeing in the colonies that the the colonized people are having themselves the same thing. They're they're being uh, legally infantilized and they are having a new round of accumulation brought on them. So I thought something was particularly striking in this where she's talking about the Jesuits trying to teach the Nescapis uh, how the, the French way, essentially, and that man is the master and that uh, women do not rule their husbands. And they're talking about, she says, I told them, or this is a quote from, oh. Is it from Lejeune? <laughs> I don't know how to say it. Lejeune? Yeah. Lejeune. Lejeune. So it's him talking with an Escapi man. He says, I told him it was not honorable for a woman to love anyone else except her husband and that this evil being among them, he himself was not sure that his own son who was present was his son. He replied, thou has no sense. You French people love only your children, but we love all the children of our tribe. I began to laugh seeing that he philosophized in horse and mule fashion. And then moving forward, uh, there's another quote here that says they were talking about beating women, essentially, to bring them to order. And it says, such acts of injustice, Lejeune proudly commented in one particular case, caused no surprise in France because it is usual there to proceed in that manner. But among these people, where everyone considers himself from birth as free as wild animals that roam in their great forests, it is a marvel or rather a miracle to see a preemptory command obeyed or an act of severity or justice performed. And... They said that the Jesuits' greatest victory was persuading the Descapi to beat their children, believing that the savages' excessive fondness for their offspring was the major obstacle to their constitution. And um, their Legend's diary records the first instance in which a girl was public, publicly beaten while one of her relatives gave a chilling lecture to the bystanders on the historical significance of the event. Quote, this is the first punishment by beating, he said, we inflict on any one of our nation. So that's pretty disgusting. Yeah, it was really sad, this story of their Christianization. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, I didn't even know like what in the caption where I highlighted. I just put a frowny face. It's like... <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Fuck colonization. Like, this is obviously genocide. Yeah, this fucking French guy just like lauding it over them, being like, huh, these idiots like <laughs> don't know how to do things. And it's like... Hmm. Sounded like the Nescafe kind Horse of. Worse than mule fashion. They had things sorted out on their own. Yeah, I think they had it already. I don't think they needed yeah. any education. They were fine. <laughs> yeah. And we're seeing really firsthand how, how the misogyny really needed to be incentivized and this violence towards women and children needed to be normalized. Like, it's, it really drives home Federici's point about this transition from feudalism to capitalism that, like, as if to, to imply that people weren't doing things entirely differently before, like this, this new social order that is capitalism needed this violent accumulation on women and, and the colonized for its existence. It's, it's absolutely wild to see these, these firsthand examples of how the modern racism we understand today, the modern misogyny we understand today, are all socially constructed as a means of bringing about this new social order. And that this isn't a progress of any kind for, for so many of the people who were the direct victims of its growth. Yeah, I thought uh, a striking part was talking about how in Spanish colonies, because of intermarriage between the colonizers and the native people, there was a large 
population of mestizos, and this began to kind of threaten the privileged position of the colonizers. So this is where you get uh, the society of the castas and the modern racial hierarchy that we know characterized the Spanish colonies. So again, this was something that you know, had to be you know, forced on the people. And to drive the point home even further is we see how, how the capitalists and, and these, new, these new ruling class brought what they learned from the enclosure over and made it even worse. And then you see how in slavery in the American colonies, they would bring these new, these new population control methods, these new social programming methods to a, a whole new and, and more violent and more end with the way that the blacks and brown slaves were treated in the colonies and a new paradigm was social paradigm was constructed around them and their identities. So yeah, we actually see how um, in, in the colonies, masters attempted to control the reproduction of their slaves in sl- similar but frequently more brutal ways than were done to women in the enclosure because they, they had now totally legislated, uh, effectively legislated the humanity out of, out of slavery. They, they no longer viewed them as, as people at all by this period. And, and that'll bring us nicely into, um, into the next section, which is capitalism and the sexual division of labor. Yeah, it is a, it's a nice brief little section. I actually just have one big quote highlighted from the section. So I'll just read that off. And I, I think we can get into our final group question and round off the discussion. So in capitalism and the sexual division of labor, Federici states, as I have argued, the power difference between women and men and the concealment of women's unpaid labor under the cover of natural inferiority have enabled capitalism to immensely expand the unpaid part of the working day and use the male wage to accumulate women's labor. In many cases, they have also served to deflect class antagonisms into antagonisms between women and men. Thus, primitive accumulation has been above all an accumulation of differences, inequalities, hierarchies, divisions, which have alienated workers from each other and even from themselves. So that'll bring us into our final uh, group discussion question, which is, knowing that the legislative effects of colonialism, imperialism, and accumulation must be accompanied by violent terror and enforcement, can we think of examples of this happening today? Free Palestine? (laughs) So I do want to say one more thing about that section. So she says, as we've seen, male workers have been complicitous with this process as they have tried to maintain their power with respect to capital. By devaluing and disciplining women, children, and the populations the capitalist class has colonized. So I just thought that was important to mention that the reason it still exists is not because women aren't fighting, but because men are complicit. So yeah, moving forward. But yeah, let's let's uh, modern examples of colonialism and imperialism are everywhere. I mean, examples of this can still be found all over the globe. We could name countless South American and Central American countries that have been subjected to these new social dynamics and these new economic systems that have subjugated not just the workers, but have subjugated the women to the workers as a means of of deflecting the antagonisms between class into antagonisms between gender. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's a, a a million examples of this of how um, it, capitalism has ex- expanded uh, you know, throughout the globe, looking for 
new um, <laughs> new areas uh, to exploit at, at different and deeper levels, depending on sort of what's going on at the time. And concurrent with that, uh, and, uh, you know, maybe required by that is is the exploitation uh, of women as well. Um, you know, like, uh, I, I think that we can see examples of resurgent uh, sort of uh, right-wing movements with uh, attendant sort of machismo elements uh, in South America. And I mean, there's obviously complicated history there with uh, revolution and counter-revolution, but uh, looking at, uh, again, Brazil, uh, what's happening there under Bolsonaro and the, the rollback of women's rights and LGBT rights um, uh, in the same breath as expanding their own sort of self-colonization and self-exploitation uh, for the use of, uh, you know, foreign powers, uh, you know, the, the developed West, if you want to call it that. I would argue every place that the United States has brought freedom to um, is a place that we have been uh, in specifically to reinforce our right to accumulate, not right to accumulation, but our continued um, extraction of capital from those areas. So, um, yeah. The one that immediately comes to my mind because it's a capitalism very quickly was established was the fall of, of the Soviet Union and the German Democrat, basically the whole Eastern Bloc, how we know that um, almost immediately there was a massive backsliding in while they weren't perfect beforehand, there was still a massive right. backsliding in any kind of uh, social protections for women. Absolutely. Like I was, I was going to mention um, just uh, like we see the counter revolution just nowadays, like in the news, how, what is happening if you see Brazil or if you see Bolivia or any country who's doesn't side with US interests, how they're just gonna like, the US or globally just uses any kinds of methods to like bend them to their to its will through warfare, economic warfare. Like this is all also terror, starving a country, taking their away their supplies if you blockade it. But also, yeah, with the USSR, I mean Parenti talks about it, how the how women were so worse off like especially in russia and in the, in the in ukraine when it happened 1991 and how the police force like significantly was expanded after the fall of the ussr so like that the enforcement was necessary and these people had to be forced to live with the significant lowering of their of their quality of life I was just going to agree with what you said earlier and with Tadichi pretty much anywhere that has opposed US interests or has been a victim of US imperialism and colonialism would be in there. So also like Iraq would definitely be one that would jump out at me. And as Andrew said, Palestine as well. And every time we try to overthrow anywhere in South America, like trying to delegitimize Maduro or, you know, funding coups in Bolivia because lithium, all of those things are just capital gaining ventures and they also reinforce the idea that socialism doesn't work and so and that that is useful propaganda for them as well but i would also say answering the question um here that even accumulation by women's bodies like accumulating women's bodies is still 
a extremely active market. Um, for example, in uh, the United States and Canada, um, there is an ex- there's a huge dynamic of um, missing and murdered Indigenous women that the statistic is significantly higher for Indigenous women than any other demographic to go missing or to be um, victim of sex trafficking. And that's largely something that legislatively, although it is illegal to do, is something that just is basically completely unfettered. So, um, like, literally, the the process of accumulating women for the use of men is still happening. In Montana, where I live, it has a fairly large Native population. And just this year, just in January, uh, I think three three young women have disappeared from the the reservations, and one of them was found dead. So that's something that's been on my mind recently. Yeah, all of us here, especially in the border between U.S. and Canada, because I'm here in Washington, I think that's where we see the largest influx of this happening. It's absolutely devastating because because they're, they're Indigenous women who socially are either stigmatized or fetishized. There's no gray area. They don't get reported on. And the only people that talk about it are people like us, like, or people in the indigenous communities. And so like, it's just, it just goes completely without being said. And so we have these whole like marches about women and shit, but like nobody's talking about the fact that indigenous women are being stolen and murdered and being used to extract capital from. So yeah, it's, it's a huge problem. Yeah, and not, not only in the US and Canada, also in um, in Australia. Like we're recording today on what is known in Australia as Australia Day, but right. it's known to pretty much everyone else as Invasion Day. And it's, yeah, it's a problem there too. That's like how the US views the Vietnam War, but it was actually the war of US aggression, if you ask anyone else. Mm-hmm. And I think I'd add to what you were saying earlier about the accumulation of women's bodies the entire garment industry in South Asia, Southeast Asia, like Bangladesh, oh, Pakistan, God, yeah. Indonesia, people working in sweatshops, pretty much slave, if not slave labor. Right. Or like the company Nestle is like, they've basically, not basically, they have literally come out publicly and said, hey, we know we source some things from people who use slave labor, but we can't do anything about that. So it's cool. So that's what Nestle says. <laughs> As well as water is not a human right. Didn't they say like it would cost too much to investigate, and that's why they don't? That's bother. exactly their justification: is that it would cost too much to. Like right. you don't want our products to get more expensive, do you? Yes, I do. I would pay twice so as like... much for a crunch bar. Thank you. Yeah, that, that's fine. <laughs> if it could not be a slave bar, I'd, I'd pay sixty more cents, probably. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's the world of uh, of accumulation that we live in today. From yeah, the uh, from the 16th and, yeah, and 15th that. centuries, so yeah, that was a hell of a, a discussion <laughs> we got to have just there. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much to everybody who joined us this week. I think that was a, a phenomenal session. So I just have to say, the other day I had a session with a therapist for the first time in a while, and she was like, "So do you have a sense of like impending doom <laughs> or anything like that?" And I was like. <laughs> I literally laughed. I was like, well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Do you not?
I know. I was Do like, you know? I pay way too much attention. Oh, yeah, I hope your answer was like that we have exactly. So I was like, exactly. What I was going to say you don't <laughs> constantly concerned. <laughs> oh, it just made me laugh. I was like, that's that's. That's everyone in my generation, right? <laughs> it's like, do you, what do you want me to really answer here? Because I think it would be stupid if I said no. Uh, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's a cute question. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'm glad we had this session. Thank you for listening to Red Book Club. If you need any additional resources or want to reach out to us, we're on Twitter at RBCPod. We also have our website, rbcpod.wordpress.com, where you can find our full episode list and an ebook library, including all the works in our current series on Marxist feminists. If you'd like to support us or join the book club, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com redbookclub, where you can gain access to our Discord server, where we meet every Sunday to discuss what we've been reading. We're currently working out a couple of ideas for perks for our patrons, but on that note, a huge thank you to the people who have begun to support us already. We really appreciate your support, and it'll help us to continue to improve the pod. So thank you to Aaron, thank you Casey, thank you Quentin, and thank you Coxforce5 Dog Panty. We appreciate you so much that we will shout you out, even if you have a username like that. Also, thank you to Keenan for our intro theme, and to the Craigbot for helping us to record. Join us again next time, where we'll be continuing our readings from Sylvia Federici's Caliban and the Witch. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time. Solidarity forever.